In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, Mark tells us that Jesus was teaching and performing miracles and began to leave the area where he was doing this. And he started to head to Jerusalem, and as he did, a man came running up to him, and he knelt down, and he asked Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus said, Only God is truly good. But to answer your question, you must follow the commandments. You know them. You don't murder. You don't commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not false testify falsely. You must not cheat anyone. Honor your father and mother. The teacher, the man replied, I have obeyed all these commands since I was young. And looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. And he said, there's still one thing you haven't done. Go sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then, come and follow me. And at this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad, for he had many possessions. Well, good morning, Westridge. I just want to add my comments to the fact that it's very, very good to have Eric Goodman back with us. So grateful for the work that he's doing infecting Springfield with the spirit of Westridge. Um, and we haven't mentioned this uh, yet. It's not too early to talk about Christmas, but uh, Eric and Michael and Michael are a part of a group called uh, the Appalachian Christmas Quartet, and they're going to be doing a concert here on December 3rd. I think it's a Wednesday night. Uh, it's just going to be a very cool evening. And the cost of the tickets is uh, free. So mark your calendars, be a part of it. Uh, You may want to start lining up like December 2nd, camping out uh, to be sure you get a seat. So, or just slip Michael 20 bucks uh, and he'll save a seat for you. So it'll be a fun evening, you want to be a part of that. Uh, In what I just read out of Mark chapter 10, we come across a young man in the Gospels who from all appearances would be an ideal candidate to be a follower of Jesus, to be one of his disciples. In fact, he makes such an impression on the gospel writers that he's included in three of the four gospels. This account is. There aren't many of the events in Jesus' life that make that cut, that get in all three of those gospels. Luke's gospel tells us that this young man is already an experienced leader, probably one of the rulers in the local synagogue. He's influential. He's managed his finances well. He's accumulated wealth and a lot of it. He's self-aware. He recognizes there's something missing in his life. And he's also discerning. He's come to the right person to ask the question, what is it I'm missing? He's come to Jesus. He's got some humility as he approaches Jesus. He comes running up to Jesus and falls on his knees to ask the question as a sign of respect. He's lived a solid, moral, respectable life. All these dominoes start to be lining up. He looks like a great candidate to be a follower, a disciple. And if we're honest, he seems like he's a more qualified candidate than some of the other customers Jesus has lined up as disciples already. I mean, let's be honest. Simon the Zealot, if he were around today, he would make the terrorist watch list. 
he had sworn to kill Roman soldiers any chance he got, kept a dagger tucked inside his cloak, just right inside the belt, had honestly taken that pledge. Matthew, the tax collector, if you were here last week, you know that tax collectors were extortionists and frauds. So when Jesus chose Matthew, he chose somebody that nobody liked. Then you got Judas, good old Judas. Jesus could have dumped him anytime and nobody would have been sad. In addition to eventually betraying Jesus, Judas was the treasurer for the group and was regularly dipping his hand into the group's travel fund. This rich young ruler had a lot more going on than some of the 12 that Jesus had chosen. But something goes terribly wrong in this encounter. The rich young ruler is the only person in all of the Gospels who has this kind of an encounter with Jesus. This kind of a conversation with Jesus. And ends up walking away sad. This man's reaction makes the truth all too real for the disciples that following Jesus is not for everyone. There are some subtle but clear messages in this interaction between Jesus and the wealthy man. Messages that draw clear lines of what it means to follow Jesus and just how costly grace can be. So the man comes up to Jesus and the first thing he says to him appears innocent enough. He says, good teacher, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' response strikes me at least, maybe you too, as a little bit odd when Jesus says, why do you call me good? Only God is truly good. Why would Jesus respond that way? Well, in this simple greeting, the man leads with his trump card. He's been apparently following Jesus around, listening to the teaching that he was doing immediately preceding this at least, maybe longer. And as a religious leader, he knows the teachings of the Old Testament. He knows the teachings in the Old Testament about the Messiah. And from the way he's addressing Jesus, there's a really good possibility that he understands those teachings and believes that Jesus is the Messiah. Because throughout the Old Testament, the only person who was called good was God. And so to address Jesus as good teacher, good teacher... That's really close to a confession of faith. So Jesus is being crystal clear at the beginning of this conversation with a man who is at least earnest and sincere. Basically calling him out and saying, do you really, really know who I am? Do you believe what you're saying? Because that, that's the first part about following Jesus. Being clear on who he is. Jesus didn't claim to be just another good teacher. Jesus didn't claim to be one of many paths to get to God. Jesus drew very clearly defined lines, made very bold statements that turned the religious and theological world on its ear. Just right before this encounter, Jesus said things that made people's heads spin. He said things like, if you want to be first in my kingdom, you have to learn to be last. If you want to save your life, you're going to have to learn to lose it. And when you finally lose your life, then you'll really find it. And if you want to be a part of my kingdom, (laughs) you've got to learn to be like these little children right in front of me. 
made their heads spin. Maybe the most controversial thing that Jesus said in all of his teaching, and the thing that gives us trouble in our inclusive culture, is when Jesus said in John's Gospel, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. That simple statement's been a dividing line for centuries. The idea that Jesus is the only way to God and heaven is something people struggle with. It may be something you struggle with. I've known a lot of people who've wrestled with that for years. Couldn't get over that dividing line in their faith or even to come to faith in Jesus. But if you study his teachings, it's a line Jesus drew really clearly. It was the clarifying question he was asking of this rich young ruler that day. And it's a question he still asks today. Do you believe I'm the Son of God? Do you believe that I am the way, the truth, and the life? Every other question about faith, every other question about Jesus is secondary to that one. To follow Jesus forces us to dig deep, to wrestle with what we truly believe about His claim to be the Son of God and the only way to be saved. Now, if you're wrestling with that question, you don't have to wrestle with it alone. There are lots of people here who would engage in a conversation with you about that. And I've been around the church all my life. And I know that when I say that, some of you go, yeah, right, a a conversation. It is. We're not the kind of church that wants to debate with you, wants to harangue you, wants to argue with you. We recognize that just like for this young ruler, this rich guy, it's a journey for you. And it's a journey you have to choose whether you want to go on or not to figure out just who Jesus was. And it may take you a few conversations. It may take you years to wrestle that question to the ground. And that's okay. As long as you wrestle with it. And if we can be helpful, we'd love to. In a conversation. Not to push you or shove you in that. But just like this young man, you've got to wrestle with it. You've got to decide for yourself. This guy apparently already believes who Jesus is. He's come to Jesus knowing, sensing in his gut that he's missing something else, though. And when he asks Jesus what I have to do to be saved, Jesus begins to list out the commandments. And his response is genuine and sincere. Jesus lists them out and he says, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was little. I was just a kid. You can almost hear the eagerness in his voice. He's a bit of an overachiever if you will. He's got his spiritual to-do list. Jesus says, well, don't steal. He goes, check. Don't lie. Check. Don't murder. Double check, Jesus. That that was never been a problem, okay? All the way down the list. But he's looking for what needs to be added to his spiritual portfolio so that he's sure he'll get into heaven. And Jesus looks at him, and he just, I love this in Mark's gospel. He says, He genuinely felt love for this man. It's really important to see that. I've read this I don't know how many times, and I never really saw it until this week. Jesus genuinely loved this rich young man. 
It's important because what Jesus says next to him doesn't come out of a place of anger. It doesn't come out of a place of animosity or brutality. He says to this man some really tough things, but it comes out of a love place. You could have caught this guy later on walking down the street after he left Jesus and said, so how'd it go? And I'm confident he would have said, you know, he looked in me and he saw me. He knew me, loved me, but I just couldn't do what he asked me to do. Out of love, Jesus says, you know, there's just one thing you haven't done. Go sell what you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. That was the pivotal moment in the conversation. Not because Jesus went around preaching socialism. You know, everybody had to sell everything they have, come live in a commune, stop showering. I mean, that wasn't what Jesus preached. It was a pivotal moment because Jesus put his finger right on the pulse of the very thing that kept this young man from being fully committed to God. That's the only person in all of Scripture that Jesus said this to. Nobody else. There were other followers that Jesus had who were wealthy. He didn't say it to them. Some of his disciples had their own family businesses. Jesus didn't say, sell your business and then come follow me. In fact, Peter and Andrew, James and John had family businesses, fishing businesses, that evidently kept running fine. All the time they were following Jesus. Right after Jesus died, within days, they were back in the family business. And that's where Jesus found them after his resurrection. This is the only guy that Jesus said this to. And he walked away sad because Jesus had pointed out the very issue that he was wrestling with. Palestinian Judaism, that this man was living. At the time of Jesus, it was preoccupied with two things. This is what they thought it meant to follow God. One of the major items was that you had to have this personal righteousness. It was all about a checklist of things that you do. So what Jesus went through first, started listing off the commands. The guy goes, I got this nailed. Boom, 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 boom. I've done these things since I was a kid. Personal righteousness. The other was social standing. He's got that one too. He's got the money. He's got the position. He's got the power. This guy had it all going on. In this conversation, Jesus lovingly points out to him, you think you've got it all going on? You think it's about being good, but honestly, being good isn't good enough. That's not what it takes to be saved. Christian Smith is a sociologist at the University of Notre Dame, and he is the preeminent expert in our day, on young adults in our culture. He studies high school, college age, and post-college age adults. And Smith says that the number one fastest growing religion in our culture among that age group is something he has defined as not Christianity, not Buddhism, not Hinduism, not atheism. He calls it moralistic, therapeutic deism. You guys are all familiar with that, right? Yeah, no. I didn't think so. It's a mouthful, isn't it? Uh, He characterizes it by certain beliefs 
that he says are so popular, they found their way into our culture without us even realizing it. And it's prevalent among that age group, fastest growing set of religious beliefs. You hear it in films, you'll hear it on TV, you hear it in talk shows, you'll even hear it in the news media. You hear it in our culture and you just don't even recognize that that's what it is. It's the strongest belief system in our culture. So I'm not trusting you'll go home and Google it and figure out what it is this afternoon. So let me not drone on. It's a massive document that he put out. Let me just summarize briefly what he says about this. He says, first of all, this set of beliefs, and there's about five key beliefs to it. The first is that there is a God who made the earth and watches over it. Okay, that's not bad, except we really don't know who that God is or how he makes himself known to us. That's all kind of fuzzy. You kind of get to define who God is. But he's out there somewhere, and he's watching over us. Second, God wants people in this world to be nice and good and kind. That's his only expectation of us. Well, what does it mean to be good and nice and kind? That's the moralism part of this. That's how you define moral people. Well, how do you define those terms? That's a little fuzzy. It's kind of up to you. What does it mean to be good? Well, that's really up to you to define. And it's up to you to define, and if your definitions clash, well, that's okay. It's fuzzy. Third, the central goal of life for human beings is to be happy and feel good about myself. That's the therapeutic part, in case you didn't pick that up. That's all life is about. What exactly does it mean to be happy? Well, that too is a little fuzzy. Your happiness may look different than mine. Fourth, God doesn't really want or need to be particularly involved in our lives. He's just out there kind of watching over things. The only time God really wants to be involved in our lives is when we have a problem and then he wants to solve it. He wants to help us solve it. He's kind of like a cosmic butler. Okay? He's out there like Alfred was for Batman. Okay? He's there to help you when you need to solve a problem. You kind of go to the back cave together, you figure it out. And then he disappears again until you have another problem. In some sense, it would be nice if God had a little back cave we could go to. That's just in my mind. It's just a little separate thing I won't go into. Uh, but God doesn't want to be particularly involved in our life. That's the deism part. That's why God is there. That's his whole reason for existence. And then lastly, the belief is that all good people go to heaven when they die. Kind of like all dogs. Okay? You'll catch that one later on. You can thank me for that. Again, what exactly is a good person? How do you define that? I don't know. It's fuzzy. But if you're good, you'll go to heaven when you die. Here's the hard part about this. It's the fastest growing religion in America today. doesn't have a church. doesn't have regular meetings. It's just this belief system that's embedding itself in American culture, especially with high school, college, and young adults. The hard part about this is, Smith says, is when asked where they're learning these beliefs, this age group says they're learning it from the adult influences in their life. And Smith says they're learning it in a lot of times from many people who are in churches and think of themselves as Christian, but what they're really living out is moralistic, therapeutic deism. That's not what Jesus taught. That's not what the Bible teaches. If you read the Bible, it's 
not that. There are elements of that that are true, but it's not the whole truth. Look at what Jesus did in this interaction with this young man. Following Jesus does make us a good person. But what God asks of us is much deeper than that. God calls us to follow Jesus' example of being a selfless, God-centered person as we live this life. And he spells out exactly what that looks like. He calls us to live a life of loving God and loving others. And he spells out what that looks like. There's not much fuzzy about that. Jesus really didn't take an aloof, I'm not interested in your life approach with this rich young ruler. He was very interested, very involved, gave very specific requests of this young man. His grace comes at a cost. And for some, it's too high of a cost. But I am convinced that deep in the heart of each individual, there is a hunger for something more, for the real deal, for a God who wants to be involved in our lives, who wants to shape us and form us in a way that's much deeper than this fuzzy logic that Smith talks about. You know, this man turned and walked away from Jesus after he made this request. And I have to believe that it made a deep impact on Jesus and on the twelve. You can hear it in the heaviness of Jesus' voice. As the man walks away, Jesus turns and looks back at the twelve and he says, how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were shocked at Jesus' reaction. They had, in their framework of religion, always believed that riches were a sign of God's favor. If this man who's been blessed by God with riches can't make it into heaven, then what hope do we have? So Jesus says to them again, Dear children, it's very hard to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, if you've ever sat through somebody teaching on this passage, you've heard them talk about that's, that's like, you know, Jesus is saying, well, there's this gate outside the city of Jerusalem, the camel has to get down on its knees. No, that's not true. There's no backing for that. Jesus is just using hyperbole. He's giving this caricature of like taking the animal, the literal animal, a camel. You ever been around a camel? They are nasty animals. They have a really bad attitude. Bad attitude. They are the hardest animal to train is what I found when I started studying this. They like to spit. They can spit like 20 feet. Just deadly accuracy. They have this big gap. They just picture that gap, just this nasty tobacco juice-like thing. Just deadly accurate. They don't like to be trained. They're hard. In fact, in the news this week, just very timely news piece. There was a guy somewhere, I don't know where it was, trying to train a camel. Camel just had had enough. So the camel just, just spit right on him, wasn't done with him, kicked him, and then sat down on him, stayed sitting down on him until the man died. Nasty attitude. Jesus said it would be easier to take that bad attitude animal train that big, nasty animal to go through the little eye of a sewing needle, then it would be for a rich man to go to heaven. 
we're a cantankerous bunch of people, aren't we? And Jesus is just pointing out our human nature. His point in this is this. Every one of us has barriers that get in the way of our relationship with God. And if we're followers of Jesus, we have to discover and remove those barriers because Jesus demands first place in our lives. The disciples were astounded with every phrase Jesus utters. He's sharpening the edge of his teaching. It's gone from it's hard to it's very hard to get into the kingdom of God. He's gone from it's hard for a rich man to now it's hard for everybody to get into the kingdom of God. And the disciples just go, then who in the world can be saved? And Jesus answers them, humanly speaking, it's impossible. Just let that one hang for a minute. Jesus has just said, humanly speaking, it's impossible to be saved. He's trying to drive home a point that we still struggle with today. We might get it intellectually, but we struggle to live it out. Here's his point. We can't save ourselves. And I get it. We live in a performance-based culture. Athletics, careers, we measure performance in everything. That's how we gauge our success. We, we, We use Google reviews and Yelp to report the success of a restaurant and providing our dinner, and we use it to choose where we're going to go to dinner. We use those same reviews to help us choose everything from our next appliance to our next physician. So I guess it's natural that we would want to gauge our own performance with God and understand where we are. So we look at our performance, and then we challenge ourselves to simply try harder. We think that success is up to us, our commitment, our zeal, our discipline, and of course, a little bit of help from God somewhere along the way. Jesus looks at the disciples and drives the point home painfully. It's not only very hard to get into the kingdom of God, it is impossible to be saved on human effort. You can't do it by being good, by trying harder. We can't be good enough, we can't work hard enough, we can't give enough money away to be saved. We can't work ourselves out of the bad situation that our sin has put us in. We can't save ourselves. And I'm incredibly grateful that he didn't just stop there. He didn't just look at the disciples and say, okay, let's walk. He said, humanly speaking, entering the kingdom, being saved is impossible. But with God, everything's possible with God. Everything. I would imagine when that rich young man walked away from Jesus that day, he had a lot on his mind. He walked away wondering, what do I do now? Jesus clearly laid down the challenge. You just imagine the thoughts in his head. I've lived a good life. I've done a lot right. I've lived a clean, moral life. I've kept my finances in order. Got a 
great bank account, lots of nice things. I didn't expect that from Jesus. But he's laid down a challenge. i got to decide. Most scholars agree that that young man who came to Jesus that day, knelt down in front of him, asked the question, got up and walked away sad, was in fact the same man, Mark, who wrote this gospel. And if that's true, then we know the rest of the story. We know that Mark then followed Jesus around for the next two or three years, listening to Jesus' teaching, wrestling with the question, what am I going to do? We know that he showed up in the Garden of Gethsemane the night that Jesus was praying before the crucifixion. The soldiers came. When they arrested Jesus, they grabbed this young man, tried to arrest him too, and he fled for his life. Somewhere in the middle of this listening to Jesus, wrestling with the question, Mark gave his life to Jesus, became a follower. He dealt with that challenge, wrestled that question to the ground. That same question that Jesus placed in front of Mark is a really good question that's in front of us today. What's the one thing that's standing between me and following Jesus with all my heart? been following Jesus over 45 years now. I'm not a skeptic. I'm a storyteller. I can tell you about those 45 years and the people I've walked with and my own life, what Jesus has done in those 45 years and what I've seen and how following Jesus is the best path, no question. But it's not an easy path. can tell you how Jesus has asked me to change so many areas in my life. How I treat people. How I deal with money in my life. What are my priorities? What are my values? There's not a single area in our lives that Jesus won't look into and challenge us on once we make that commitment to follow Him. And I know that following Jesus isn't what everyone will choose. But I also know that it's possible for everyone. And it's not possible because of our strength. It's not possible because of our power, our prestige, our accomplishments. It's not possible because of anything that we've done. It's possible because of what Jesus has done. Following Jesus is possible because of what he will do in our hearts and in our lives once we make the decision to follow him completely with our whole heart. So let me just ask you one more time to think about it. What is that one thing that's standing between you and following Jesus? 
with your whole heart.